It's time again for the TCU Food Bank's Taking Care of You podcast. I'm your host, Spud McConnell, and we're going to talk about how you can help feed the hungry and the homeless down in South Louisiana. So let's chew the fat, huh? Now make la vie, as the Cajuns say on the TCU Food Bank's Taking Care of You podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to God. When was the last time I saw you, man? And it wasn't, I wasn't getting frisked. It's Sheriff Craig Wepper, who we went to Nichols. We did, and I think I saw you when Amy Peron got married. I believe you were yeah, at the wedding. Yeah, yeah. I've seen you since then. Yeah, since then, you know, I've done here come some shows. I don't get to come to Thibodeau much, man. I really don't. I don't. I've been in, in Homa now six months. Of course, I've doing this watched and, you perform on a couple of occasions, but I was just a face in the crowd, so we didn't get a chance to. And yeah, and the, the sad thing about it is, people come to me after, especially the Kingfish, and they'll go afterwards. If I didn't know you really well before, and people like you, you would go like, yeah, you ain't going to bother him, man. He's tired. I was flaked out after the end of that show. That's an exhausting play. Yeah, one-man play is pretty much it. Well, Earl Long, you ever saw that one? Did not. Earl Long in Purgatory. That show, I think, is a better piece of theater. But I, I also had to have a heart attack on stage. And it's just a, oh. oh, it's a strange, you know, it's it's like you're going in one direction and then the go turn hard and the, the lines are just all over the place. It was a very strange, I think my strange favorite show. Earl Long line is when I die, I want to be buried in Louisiana so I can stay active in politics. <laughs> <laughs> he had a bunch of good lines. I tell you what. Uh, but anyway, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to talk to you because you've been a sheriff now for uh, how, a little while. Good. 10, 12, 15, 20 something years, 20 years, right? I'm in my 30th year. No, you're lying. No, no you've been 30 years in law enforcement. You ain't been the sheriff for 30 years. 40 plus in law enforcement. You've been the sheriff for 30 years? Got elected in 91, got sworn in in 92, and we are in 22. So, damn. Yeah, July 1st will be the beginning of my uh, 31st year. Well, you look sane. I feel sane. Surrounded <laughs> by great people. Are you? Yeah, you got work. your boy Brennan over here set this up real easily for me. So. Yeah, and I work in a wonderful parish. I serve oh, wonderful good. people, and I work with wonderful people. And there's so many opportunities in, in, in this job to really try to improve life for you, the people that you serve and to feel good about what you do. And a lot of people don't look at it or don't think of law enforcement like that, especially at the top. You know, they don't, they don't picture you thinking that way, and yet... I know I'm I'm good buddies with Joe Lapinto. You know I've I've interviewed him three or four times. It's like the dude the dude really cares about Jefferson Parish. Uh, what's uh, uh, Greg Champagne and our fraternity brothers from the band? But that boy loves St. Charles Parish. So you don't seek local elective office unless you have a burning desire to serve the people that you are part of. This is where I was born and raised. This is where I was educated. Where my family is buried. Where I'll be buried. I mean, I'm vested into the parish, as is Greg and, and, and Joe. I think one of the things people sometimes don't differentiate from a sheriff's office as compared to a police department, law enforcement is a central function of what we do, but it's only one small part of what a sheriff's office does. We have an entire civil section that collects taxes, that mm -hmm. does garnishment, that does civil sales. We have a jail or a correctional complex that we operate where people are processed and booked and incarcerated. Do you own the jail? I do now. But you didn't before. Historically, the way the structure yeah. is set up, the local governing body or the parish council, police jury, has a responsibility of providing the physical location, the building, the jail, and the sheriff is legally obligated to operate the jail. Over the last couple of decades, there have been 
uh, th that has changed where sheriffs do have the right to own jail. And in our particular case, uh, my ownership or the ownership of the sheriff's office with respect to jail came about because we were successful in having a sales tax initiative referendum passed by the voters. To the parish's credit, they recognized that the old jail was deplorable and needed mm -hmm. to be improved, but they were not politically successful in either rededicating funds or getting funds uh, passed at the referendum. Uh, the sheriff's office took that mantra on and we were successful. So with that, the bond uh, for the jail is in the name of the law enforcement district and the sheriff is the chief executive chief. officer. Well, I mean, you are, I mean, how many, how many parish-wide elected officials are there? There's the sheriff, there's the parish president, if, the, if you have one, not everyone, the assessor the and the coroner. The district attorney yeah. and the judges. Of course, the judges are state They're court judges. judges but many judicial districts are a single parish, like yeah. Lafouche. Some are multi-parish. So, uh, but the main ones are DA, sheriff, clerk of court, assessor, and parish president or police jury president. Yeah. Because I was talking to Joe Lapinto of Jefferson Parish. He goes, I don't own that jail. I run it, but the parish owns it. So if something, the toilet breaks, call Cynthia head. <laughs> anyway, that's, well, I mean, the reason I wanted to bring that particular thing up is is talking about the reentry program. And I got a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, but sure. uh, but I'm, we're working with uh, with Hester Serrano from the Department of Corrections. She's in charge of reentry in Terrebonne and Lafouche parishes. I've had her on my podcast two or three times talking about this. And we at the food bank uh, are going to hire probationers and parolees. We are going to teach them warehousing skills and how to operate forklifts and things like that. It's going to be a 90 day program. And then when they come out, we got about six companies that are all ready to sign them up as long as they pass our course. You know, of course, the first thing is show up every day on time sober. That's first. You don't do that. You don't get to touch the, uh, the cool. I mean, they don't let me drive the forklifts. So that's how touchy they are. And you, do you show up sober every day? I show up. Right. <laughs> I show up sober. It's oh, just don't, God. don't, don't let me open my lower left hand drawer. That's all. No, but, but uh, uh, Terrebonne Parish is behind, uh, or behind you guys. I mean, you guys have been more interested in reentry programs here in Lafouche Parish than Terrebonne. But I mean, she's really kicking it up a notch here. Is, uh, is, is, is there something? like that here, like we're going to be doing over there in Terrebonne? What you got over here for, uh, along those lines? Well, I will tell you that, first let me give Hester the credit that she is due. She is a rock star in, mm. in reentry. It's not just a job that she's assigned and she's taking on that task. She's fully ingrained in, in, in reentry from the full spectrum of everything that goes along with that. And I think I'd just like to share a couple of perspectives leading up to the re-entry process to give the people who are listening a better perspective. The first is re-entry itself. The statistics show that about 96% of people who are arrested come back into society. The old notion of lock them up and throw away the key only exists for a small percentage of people, the most serious offenders. So if 100 people are incarcerated from Lafouche or Terrebonne or whatever community they live in, 96 or 97 have to come back at some point. Yeah, They have to pay their price and then they get their second chance or third chance or fourth chance. They don't stay locked up forever. They are going to re-enter the society. The question is how? What do they re-enter with? If they re-enter with nothing but what they enter the system with, there's a high probability that they're going to re-offend and recidivate. 
And so the whole concept of reentry is let's focus on a known offender population. People who have been to jail are known offenders. Yeah. They've been arrested. Three or four They've times. They've had their due process rights. They've they know the, the system. Courts, and they have served their sentence, their lawful mm-hmm. sentence. Now they're coming back into a community. That community has to be prepared and that offender has to be prepared to help them successfully re-enter. And part of that preparation begins with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, food, yeah. shelter, clothing, security. So if you don't have an infrastructure or a support system, yeah. if you're not lucky enough to have a mom or a dad or a wife or a brother or a cousin or a good friend to give you a place to stay, to provide you some food, to help you get a job, and that's a difficult thing because when you fill out a job application and they say, list your prior work history. If you put that I was cooking in the jail for the last three years, five years, 20 years, yeah. um, that's a hard reference for an employer to look at and be really excited. Well, you can't write them. press and license plates. I mean, you're certainly not gonna get hired yeah. doing so, that. So consequently, it, it takes courage on the part of employers yeah. to provide jobs because well, well, I mean, that's the when we first started talking to Hester Serrano about this, the first thing was like we, she told us point blank, one of the reasons people recidivate is because they're hungry. They need food. They just, just, they'll go shoplift because they can't feed themselves. They can't feed their family. So the first thing we said was, we got food. We'll give you some voucher. I mean, we can't feed you three hots and, uh, every day, but we certainly can take the edge off and so you can find something else. And that's when it started rolling into this, okay, we, we have warehousing skills we can teach. And so now this whole program is called Operation Sunrise. And it's we're going to get our first couple of people, like, probably in about two weeks, you know. So And, and you know, the, uh, the Terrebonne Church's United Food Bank brings in a spiritual component of what we're talking about here. Uh, we're teaching a man to fish. Yes. By giving them some skills that they can then... But you guys are doing that too. I mean, we're getting the credit for that. But you guys actually have programs in jail that teach them to fish. It's just whether or not they want to take advantage of it. Our correctional complex, the Food Crash Correctional Complex, was designed with a a, a goal of rehabilitation and re-entry. The idea that if we can prevent someone from returning into society and re-offending... You know how many victims there won't be yeah. because of that person not reoffending, and and you have to really get to the core of the individual. We have to assess two things. One is risk. Certainly, when we put somebody back out and they are under supervision, we have to try to determine what their level of risk is, and 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 make sure we have the right protective measures that we can provide. But more importantly, or equally important, I should say, are the needs. What are the deficiencies, or what are the conditions? that's unique to this individual that resulted in them becoming an offender and getting incarcerated. Were they abused as a child? Mm-hmm. And was there psychological scars? Or there mental issues? Or there moral issues? Or there job skill issues? Literacy issues? Educational issues? Vocational issues? What are the needs that this particular individual has or they're lacking in that we try to provide the right sort of programming, a GED. And the needs can be very complex. They can be substance abuse. They can be severe mental health issues. They can be physical disabilities. They can be a whole spectrum of things that this person needs. Sometimes they can be very simple, like 
an ID, a driver's license or an ID that you can get into a place, somewhere else to live. And as you mentioned, food within a certain number of hours. If you can't dive into a dumpster or get somebody to give you a bucket too so you can go buy food, you're probably going to shoplift. Yeah. You're probably going to get reoffended. And, and, and in conjunction with that, the system has to look at what I call and what people typically call as tripwires. If you set all of these tripwires where people are almost guaranteed failure, then you really have not provided an opportunity for reentry. So food, you know, food insecure people. I mean, if you can give them food and they don't have to be concerned about that basic need, yeah. then you can get them some basic job skills that they can get into them, get in, get employed, and then they can demonstrate uh, the ability to be a good worker uh, and for the first time in their life contribute in a positive way. And it, uh, I think that's everyone a, benefits from. And we accomplished the goal of public safety. We're making our communities safe and secure. We're improving the quality of life for everyone. Yeah, I, I talked to Senator John Kennedy back when he was the state treasurer, and I had many, many conversations with him about many, many things. And uh, I got to step away because I'm out of time for this segment. But one of the biggest things he said, he really, really pushes getting the GEDs. He says, just right off the bat, recidivism dropped between 5 and 10% just because they came out being able to read and write. Most of them went in reading at a fifth grade level if they were lucky. They come out reading at 11th or 12th grade level right away that opens up so many more doors for him you know so he's a big push for that we're stepping away talking to uh, sheriff craig weber here in in thibodeau sheriff of lafouche parish back with more right after this do you know what it means to miss new orleans the next time you have to travel take along a couple of pounds of parish coffee and you won't be missing new orleans for long brewed right here in the land of coffee lovers parish coffee has the taste you're looking for from dark roast to coffee and chicory to flavored coffees like Bananas Foster or Bourbon Pecan, French Vanilla or King Cake or you name it, Parish Coffee has a flavor just right for you. Look for the bright purple bag in the coffee aisle of your favorite market or order it online. Have it sent right to your door. What a perfect gift for any coffee aficionado. Sip the soul of New Orleans in every cup of Parish Coffee. 30 years and counting. That's right. ABC Title Scary Fast Service been around 30 years. Car titles, license plates, a notary public. Start the ball rolling with their online service at abctitle.com. ABC Title, your scary fast DMV service company. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound too good. You better start filling sandbags. Oh, wait, you don't have to do that anymore because you have the home team advantage. You called Home Team Elevation at 504-301-1222, and you got your home lifted above the flood. No more worries for you. What about your mama's house or your uncles or your brothers? Home Team is ready to lift their spirits even higher than your home. Get the Home Team advantage by calling 504-301-1222 or go to hometeamelevation.com. And we're back talking to Sheriff Craig Weber of uh, Lafouche Parish, who has no intention of going anywhere, and probably one of them deals where it's like, you know, you got to decide whether am I going by 80% or 90%. <laughs> well, if, I'll, if you run again. die in office, or the voters will reject me, or my three-year-old daughter will finish college, and then I'll feel like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, I got... My youngest is 20, and oh, she's yeah. still got two years left at Loyola. Um... Okay, so before, and we were talking about um, uh, the reentry programs and food insecurities and things like that, and it brought up a question about um, uh, work release during the break while we are talking. 
What's the, I mean, when ex, explain exactly what that is. I, I think I know what it is, but exactly what is it? So the Department of Corrections for many years, and we've been doing it for 20 years as a contractor, has what people typically call work release or transitional work program. When an offender is within a year or two of release, so if you've got a 10-year sentence and you serve eight, if you meet the qualifications, you then go into a minimum security facility, you're still incarcerated, you're still considered in prison, but the, uh, we find you a job in the community uh, based on your skill set, and you are gonna be paid the wage that job demands. And we take you to work, you provide work there, you, whatever the task is, we pick you up, and we house you, feed you, and monitor, and we test you. You keep their money until they get out? No, the money goes into an account. Well, I mean, yeah. So in other words, they don't get it, but when they do get out the money, they get the money. A percentage of the money they have to pay for their upkeep. So they're, they're actually contributing to the cost of incarceration. The rest of the money is for them and for other financial obligations, such as child support and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. You know, the higher paying jobs earn more money. But at one point, we had an individual working offshore on a rig, and he worked so, so many hours and he had a skill as a gauger, whatever it was. When he left, he had $188,000. Now that's an exception, but yeah. the possibility is there. So the difference between transitional work, which allows people to work, gives them the interaction of the employer-employee mindset relationship, and what you're doing with Operation Sunshine is now these people, the people have been released, they're formally incarcerated. So there's a much greater responsibility on the individual. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to get up and you have to get there. Yeah, y'all don't come wake them up. That's right. You have to get your own transportation. You have to be there. You have to be accountable. In the work release format, if you show up and you're not working correctly, you just get taken out of the work or out of the program. Mm -hmm. Here, you get fired. Then you got to go to your probation office and explain why you got fired. Yeah. But but the concept is, and, and look, in the beginning, there was some hesitancy among employers. Oh, my God, I'm, I'm hiring somebody who's a, who's a prisoner. And I, and I used to say to them, I said, I'll do this. Give me a roster of all of the people you have working, and I'll go run criminal histories. And I bet you'll be surprised to find that there are people who were formerly incarcerated under your employ, and maybe some of your best employees. And typically, the transitional workers get very high marks. They're very motivated workers. Because they don't, yeah, they especially don't want to go back. They work very hard, and it's not uncommon for them to retain their job once they're released. And I think you'll see the same result with, with Operation Sunshine. Yeah, I think it's going to, well, we're very, very, have very high hopes that it's going to work. And, uh, and, and right now we maxed out at eight. We can only handle eight and only, and we have the, also the St. Francis Gardens as one of our gardens right by the and, Civic Center. You're, you're light years ahead. Look, when we first opened 20 years ago, we were, our first employer was the uh, garbage people. They needed hoppers, and that was a hard job to fill. Mm -hmm. And so half of the people we had were hopping. And now we have people hiring them in restaurants and, and, and all sorts of different jobs. Yeah, they're not really working at the bank if they were a paper hanger or nothing like that. And, and so we, we've had that happen too, yeah. You know, putting an asterisk on food insecurity today with inflation as high as it is, even the average consumer is having to be cognizant of what they can spend on their food budget. Tell it's me a about. real problem. It's something that... 
that this group, this organization, uh, Terrible and Churches United Food Bank, has really taken a, yeah. a big leadership. We also have and a lot more people. and excited to be part Well, of we're glad to be a part of it. I mean, you know, we're, we did 20, almost 27,000 people last year, and we're on track to top 30 already. And it's and it's because a lot of people are going, and the, the shelves are bare, and they come to us. And, it's and yeah. Food's high. The chain, uh, the uh, the the actual what is that they call that when the truckers and everything. Uh, the price well, of gas, supply, chain, supply chains, a thousand dollars. I saw a trucker on a YouTube thing going a thousand dollars to fill my tanks. It goes about a dollar a mile. So right. next, when you're paying fifteen dollars a gallon for milk, that's why. So Precisely. now let's talk about though when people do actually get out and and the recidivism rate. Hopefully, we're going to teach people a whole other skill. But I was talking to you during the break about a, a report, an article that I read about a guy who was a car thief. And when he get caught, you know, but he wasn't a carjacker. He just stole cars. Or he'd steal cars because they had certain rims on them that people, he would steal cars and, and bring them to a chop shop, and there it was. And it wasn't a dangerous thing. It cost people money. It was grief. It, it ripped off the insurance companies. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like what happened to the lady in Mid-City. Sure. Now you got these guys uh, who just got arrested with the catalytic converters, and that is a huge thing. As soon as they found out there's gold and platinum or whatever is inside those things, uh, if you got a, a battery-operated chop saw and a and a jack, you go take them. You know, and it's like it's not it's a chore and a pain for the people who've been ripped off, but it's not it's not a violent crime. So the people who are incarcerated for this, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to guess, unless they can fall into a program like ours where we actually teach them a whole nother skill, you're going to see a lot, you're still going to see a lot of recidivism among people like that. You will. And I saw just uh, yesterday or day before yesterday, I think there's a bill being introduced to provide an enhanced penalty because this is such a problem. Mm -hmm. When you think of stealing as a crime, you look at ease of access to the item that you want to steal. And return on investment and that changes over time 10 15 years ago copper was the hot item yeah i mean they will break it into houses oh and after katrina boy they were stealing everything yeah but that's a lot of work and you got to get a lot of copper to get some money those catalytic converters do have precious metals that are highly valuable not a more higher end cars have much more valuable um, um catalytic converters and they're easy to get to um, and you can slide under a car, a truck, you don't even need a jack, a car you do, you get a sawzall, you get it off real quick, and then you're out of there. Where we have made a lot of progress uh, legally is, is, and it goes back to the old days of pawn shops and fences, now there are legal requirements that they have to get identification, they have to make sure that the person has a, a license, and, and there's some, some check on the, on the consumer part of it, the mm -hmm. person buying it. In this particular case, uh, there are people who are not complying with the law of proof of where it came from. They know it's stolen. Yeah. And pawn they, shops still do that too. We we have gotten calls from dozens of law enforcement agencies because we're probably one of the few that have had success in interrupting a pretty big ring. When we when we went in and did a search warrant, there, the, the the individual who was arrested was in possession of 122 catalytic converters, and we estimate he was running at least 100 a month. We believe that one of the places is buying and it's being investigated is out of Mississippi and a possible second place. Yeah. Do you do do people report that to you as something, or they just go get another one? So I mean, are there? Can you can you tell me in Lafouche Parish how many people get their catalytic converters stolen at any given on any given I, week? I could run statistics and give you a list of how many we had. In fact, we we were doing that to try to connect the victim to the crime. Mm -hmm. 
necessarily getting compensation. But in this particular case, we had got some intelligence that this person was fencing catalytic converters. We set up some surveillance. We saw people coming in and out. We actually sent a couple of undercover people in selling some old converters off of some trash police cars. So we had that documentation. And then we identified one person who had been going there pretty frequently. We started doing surveillance, basically caught him almost in the act. He was coming out of the underneath of a truck with a saw blade in his hand and he had three catalytic converters in the back of his truck, made an arrest and then went, got the search warrants, worked with the state police and the National Insurance Crime Bureau and did a raid um, on, on the location where we recovered it. Ironically, the person buying them uh, posted a $200,000 bond. So that's Gee, I wonder where he got that money. Did he, did he pay for it in little drops of silver and rhodium? <laughs> yeah, well, what, what happened, too, is when he would bring in a converter, the converters have identifying marks on them, mm -hmm. and those marks will tell you what make or model of car come they come from. He's working with another group because he would actually call, and then he would uh, say, this is what I got, here's the number, and he would be told, give him 200 give him 500 give mm -hmm. him 1200 and so he would pay based upon the value of the converter. It's big business. And like I said, it's a big return on investment. They're fairly easily accessible. Like I said, compared to stripping wire. Yeah, true. There, cutting two pipes and then grabbing a converter. But having a place to sell, and that's really the crackdown, is, is the legislature needs to make it much more severe for the people buying them. Because if it's not a place to buy them, people aren't going to steal them. No, they won't have a place to go do it. What is the possibility of that law actually passing and being not watered down to the point where it was a lot of talk and mumbo jumbo for nothing. Well, you're gonna because that, that happens, and you know what? Yeah, because you know you may have some. Again, if you look at who's the, the bigger criminal here, is it the guy that's stealing them? Well, if you're the guy whose car got stolen, yeah, that's a bigger criminal. You mm -hmm. want him in jail for life, or is the guy that's buying them? And and if you can attack the, the purchaser of the of the of the catalytic converters and make it so much of a penalty on them that they just realize I'm not doing this. It ain't worth the risk. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose my house. If you put them on the same level as like a, a top tier drug deal. Because I mean, you're talking about, yeah, there's, there's a, if they're saying, give them 1200 for this catalytic converter, there's got to be seven or $8,000 worth of precious metals in there. Precisely. You know? So, you know, and the cars do get trashed. I mean, they, you know, they wreck them and they can't be fixed. So you can, you can read, you can legitimately have, catalytic converters that can be bought in, in a scenario like that. Yeah, but keep records. Right, keep records, get identification, have serial numbers, record transactions, report it, pay taxes on it. I mean, yeah, really, if I had a junkyard, that'd be the first thing I'd do when they bring in a thing is to cut the catalytic converter. Right. Here's, here's the, it's the VIN number I got it from, the whole shebang. And but then I you have the individual who has a car that they need to go to work. And, you know, they're going to go down the road with, with no catalytic converter making all kind of noise. They have to incur the expense of getting their car to be operable again. If, um, yeah, how, how often do victims get their money back on something like on this? It ain't going to happen. Rarely. Yeah. Rarely. If they're lucky enough to have coverage on their insurance, they might get something, but then they got a deductible. But then that's why the insurance uh, institute was working with you guys, because they're the ones eating the big end of it. And, and you know, I, I am surprised that a thief has not been apprehended by a homeowner, because um, you get hit once or twice, you can become hypervigilant about protecting your property. Yeah, I read, in, I read on your uh, um, thing right here, uh, I read it on your, on your website, on your blog, about the guys who got arrested doing this, and there's here, put park in a very, especially if you got a truck that's easy to crawl under, park it in a well lighted, get a garage, 
something, you know, try to try to minimize the thing because everybody's rates are going to go up if this kind of thing keeps going on. But and it may be that there's another partial solution in terms of car manufacturers. They may come up with a way of having catalytic converters less accessible. I'm not exactly positive that could ever happen, but you know, that may be another thing to do. You remember people used to steal gas, they put locking gas caps on. Yeah. Now they don't, don't they have a, like a screen down the hose now? Yeah. They, so you can't run that little hose, it makes it a little but they're harder. cutting, they're cutting holes. They're getting a drill and cutting holes in the bottom, you know? Yeah. So if you get somebody underneath your car, siphoning gas from a hole where you throw a cherry bomb, what do you do? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's not, it's like you see somebody stealing your catalytic converter. You can't go out there and, and, and with a 20 gauge and go, you know, right. it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's incredibly frustrating yeah. for the community. And that's why I think there's so many people who are concerned about people coming back into it. I'm going, what the hell were you doing to go in there to begin with? Well, so we were fortunate that we had intelligence that led us to the, the, the purchaser, mm -hmm. the little man, and then we could focus our attention there. And then our, our investigation branched out and, you know, made a huge impact. You're doing a hundred a month minimum i mean that's 1200 a year and you start multiplying a couple of you know 1500 2000 dollars on average yeah. that's a big business that's a big business and but these guys you know they're being like you said they call away so they don't they have so many layers of insulation between them and the big guys let's go to jail i'm not you know paying for you i'm out of time uh but we need to chat again because i didn't get to go what's going on in the parish you know I lived here for a long time, and I just I need to come play catch up. A lot of good things, a lot of good things. And some more challenges. But True, but still, Lafouche Parish has always been a, a good place to live. It it's is always, still a good place to live. Well, there you go, and it's probably because of your efforts. <laughs> uh, the efforts of a lot of people, but thank you for the compliment. Well, thank you, Craig, for taking the time, because the sheriff is always busy. You know, this ain't uh, this ain't the Dukes of Hazard down here. All right, wrapping it up here right after this. Spot here, have you ever lost your wallet? Ever lost your license? You ever lost your vehicle registration? Well, you're not lost at ABC Title. They can print up your replacement license and registration in less than 30 minutes. That's scary fast. Just bring proof of insurance and a picture ID. Yep, pizza delivery got nothing on these guys. Go to abctitle.com to find a scary fast office near you. Oh, and while you're getting a new license, maybe you should get a state ID too.